I want to just welcome my friend from South Africa, childhood friend Trevor. Trevor. Welcome, Trevor. Welcome. And uh, if anyone needs a translator, he might be able to help you. So, English. <laughs> All right, the short thought. While it is a sin to quarrel with any Jew, it's a greater sin to initiate a feud with a Talmud Chacham. All right, this week's, this day, today is called a tragic episode. Rav Yosef Kolon, uh, born in 1410 to 1418, known as the... Yosef Kolon, Amitai, the Maharik, writes of a tragic episode that happened in his time. A woman spread a rumor in a certain town that an elderly Jewish townsman had committed a terrible sin. Many of the townspeople believed the woman and they prevailed upon the leaders of the community to treat the man as a sinner. From then on, he was never called to the Torah in that town and was an object of scorn and disgrace. Maharik wrote, Whoever embarrassed this man should beg Hashem for mercy for himself for he takes a carefree attitude towards the honor of the descendants of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Without a doubt, people who react this way to rumors are despicable in Hashem's eyes, and their punishment will be severe. One who embarrasses his fellow, his fellow Jew in public forfeits his share in the world to come. A person should investigate such a rumor thoroughly before acting upon it. One who does not is taking his own life in his hands. So that's what the Marek wrote. The Chofetz Chaim points out that the testimony of a single witness in, in Betin can force someone to swear that he's telling the truth. However, it does not permit anyone to believe the testimony as fact. The Chofetz Chaim bemoans an all too common occurrence. Benny the beggar has been collecting tzedakah for himself for years. One day, a respected member of the community announces you know, you know what I heard the other day? Benny is a phony. He has thousands of dollars stashed away in the bank, enough to, enough to live on for the next 60 years. Well, he's not getting any money out of me anymore. People who listen to this announcement are quick to believe it. From that day on, when Benny approaches them with his hand, his hand outstretched, they offer him an icy stare, but no money. These people, says the Chofetz Chaim, are guilty of believing Loshan Hora. They would be permitted to investigate the report to determine whether or not there is any truth to it. However, until they have conclusive proof that Binny is a faker, they are obliged to assume that he is an honest person and truly is poor. They must give him the same amount of tzedakah as before. If someone believed Loshan Hura and has not repeated it to anyone and seeks to engage in teshuva, the process is not complicated. He must do his best to uproot the report from his mind. He must regret his sin and resolve to do his best to repeat it, not to repeat it in the future. He must confess to Hashem for having sinned. Uncomplicated? Yes. Easy? No. Once we believe something negative about someone, it is not easy to uproot it and convince ourselves that it is not true. Nevertheless, we must try our best if we truly seek to distance ourselves from the terrible sin of Lushan Hora. 
And just to summarize two points, until a negative report, report is proven true, we must treat the subject with the same respect and kindness as before. So I think that's pretty relevant, right? We hear a rumor about someone, we have an automatic bias to, to believe it. The second one, one who has believed Lushan Hora must engage in the standard process of Teshuvah. Any questions, comments? We've got 10 minutes. Ready, you want to? We've got 10 minutes. Wow, 10 minutes. Hi, everybody. Um, Parashat Emor starts with the laws of Tuma in regards to Kohanim, whom they could marry, whom they could not marry. If somebody, uh, God forbid, you know, dies in the family, whether they should go to the funeral and be part of the, uh, be part of the funeral, go to the cemetery, or they couldn't. Um, in last week's parasha, in Parashat Haremot, the Torah describes the, the process in Yom Kippur of Kohen Gadol, all the offerings that they would bring. And there were two uh, goats, two male goats that would bring Se'irim. The one of them would be offered you know, on the altar. The other one would be sent to be uh, kind of thrown off a cliff in the desert. And the commentaries point out that one of them, the one that they would put on the altar, you know, and sacrifice it, comes for Tum'at Mikdash. When somebody was uh, impure and goes into the temple, that's a sin. So that specific sacrifice is to remedy that. But the Torah says, Vayi aharemot. After the passing of the sons of Aharon, Hashem tells him, now I'm going to tell you how we remedy Tumat Mikdash, how we remedy the issue of impurity in the, in the temple. His sons died, according to the commentaries, because they walked into the Mishkan. Some of them said that their haircut was improper, too long of a hair. By the way, in those days, it was like 30 days. A Kohanim would cut their hair 30 days, meaning they were probably like, you know, a fraction of an inch longer than what it was supposed to be. And they drank some wine, much less than a plastic, a small plastic cup. Yes, it would be considered to be a sin. So obviously those two... Uh, uh, flaws that they did are considered to be part of Tumat Mikdash, meaning you showed disrespect to the temple. Now imagine Aharon just buried his two sons, wasn't even allowed to mourn their death, and now Hashem tells him, oh, now you should act fresh, I'm telling you how we remedy Tumat Mikdash. Well, I don't know about Aharon, but if it were to be, you know, me, I would have said, listen, why don't you give me a vacation of two, three days before you start talking to me about issues involving my own kids who were so righteous 
that they were supposed to bring the people of Israel into the land of Israel. Are you telling me that there is an offering to remedy what they did? It shows a level of restraint of Aharon. Vayidom Aharon. Not only did he keep quiet, it's like standing still. It's like turning himself into an inanimate object. Imagine what kind of powers you need to hold back in order to be able to process the whole thing. I mean, his two sons died. Now they're telling him to do remedies for things that are basically resemble what they, his children did. And he has to act as if it had never happened. You know, holding back is something that only we human beings can do. An animal, like a lion in the savannah, if they're hungry, they cannot hold back. They just devour whatever it is and they eat it. Um, when we eat something, when we're hungry, we have to hold back. Wait a minute. Do the right blessing and eat it properly. And if it's something that needs to be prepared or shakta, whatever it is, you have to hold back. And just, you know, some restraint before you do that. That's only we human beings can do that. Animals don't have that. And the Torah shows us the level of restraint that we should pursue in life in order to be in such a lofty level, like Aaron Cohen. You know, when I started traveling for work, it was almost 20 years ago. At that time, I had a kind of old, crappy Subaru station wagon, 1993. Every time I would come back home, they would pick me up at the airport. I, I didn't know, like, you know, such a crappy old Subaru station wagon turned into a full-blown RV. Like, my wife would have their food and drinks and snacks and a blanket and some diapers and wipers. I mean, you can literally live. And the car, I mean, the only thing they didn't have, a toilet seat, and that's it. All the rest is there. Imagine what kind of relationship I have with my wife. <clears throat> if I kept my mouth shut when I got into the car, rather than saying, what's going on? My son has that bit as one. <coughs> Since the age of eight. <clears throat> Imagine... What kind of relationship I have with my son if I didn't shout at the top of my lungs every time I heard his blood sugar, you know, sensor beeping, asking him, what did you eat? What do you do? Check your blood sugar. Imagine what kind of friend I would be to my friends in shul if I didn't take it upon me to be the guardian of God and every time somebody like talks or does something, I would be the first one to rebuke because I feel it's the right thing to do. Imagine I held back. 
<clears throat> Imagine I, I kind of took a minute to think whether it was worth it. Whether it was truly the right thing to do. Because you see, when we're young, our instinct, we're not well kind of developed as human beings yet. I mean, we develop along the years. And our instincts kind of push us to respond immediately, to hit back, slam it right there before we miss the opportunity. And then we grow older and older and we realize that the true power is really to hold back and have a restraint and give it a second thought. And not everything is, not, not every incident is so urgent and get catastrophic to think that if I don't say the right thing right now, the whole world is going to come into an Armageddon and we're going to lose. It's not. It's not. Actually, those who can hold back on a, are on a much higher level, just like I want to go in. Just like Aruna Kohen. You got you to know the Alachot of Aruna Kohen are very specific only to the high priest. They're, those Alachot, even in time of the Mikdash, are irrelevant to probably 99.9% of the Jews. And they're still in the Torah. Shabbat, all the Alachot of Shabbat are relevant to everybody. Why not put the halachot of Shabbat in front of us in this parasha? And then the halachot of Kohen Gadol, we have Mishnah, we have Gemara, you know, we don't need it. We have to learn from that. Aaron Kohen didn't get to his level being a high priest by, uh, you know, letting himself loose every time something happened. He had the power to hold back. That's a lofty level. Thank you so much.